Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Building the Ballot. We are no longer talking about the early baseball era committee. We are now talking about the Golden Days era committee. So to talk about that, uh, I once again have Graham Womack. How are you doing, Graham? Hey, Adam. Thanks so much for having me back on. Yeah. How have things been going in the, the last couple of weeks since we chatted? Oh, pretty good. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had, a, had a baseball Hall of Fame article that ran actually in the Sacramento Bee. I, I wrote about uh, Hall of Famers with connections to the Sacramento area. It's, it's kind of fun, actually, if you look on like baseball reference and stuff and you really dig through people's minor league careers. Like you can find quite a few people probably who are Hall of Famers with connections to your area, whatever part of the country you're listening in. So, yeah, no, my my favorite thing on that was uh, the article I wrote was Orlando Cepeda had lived in a suburban city here that actually I, I, I covered as a newspaper journalist. And so I got to talk, I talked to one of my old sources on that who was like, wait, Orlando Cepeda lived here? I mean, yeah, you, you learn stuff every day. Oh, that's great. I love it. Yeah, there's there's never uh, you never run out of things to learn. And that's what I love about doing these types of things, too, with you. Uh, one little programming note. Uh, last episode, I referred to as the season finale. Well, after I said that, uh, I realized that I'm going to keep going with season one because we have the two eras going at the same time. So we're going to we already covered the early days. Or sorry, the early baseball era committee. Now we're going to do the golden days. And then we're also going to have reactions when the ballots are announced. We're going to have reactions to the votes and that'll that'll wrap up season one. And then next year we'll go into season two. So just a little programming note. Yeah, so that, as long as the long as the committees have this format, uh, basically, and they, they switch them up every now and again. But as long as they have this format, generally every year it'll just be one era. But every 10 years we get two eras being considered at the same time. So when we get to season 11, y'all will get to map it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Season 11 will be stacked. We already know it. All right. So today, the Golden Days Era Committee. So this is not to be confused with the Golden Era Committee, which uh, met from 2010. Well, the it didn't meet every year, but the old Era Committee format was from 2010 to 2015. And that's when we had like the pre-integration era, the Golden Era, and the Expansion Era. Starting in 2016, that was then shifted and split into four eras. And that's where we got the early baseball era. That's up until 1950. The golden days, which we're talking about today, is 1950 to 1969. Now, that's slightly different than the previous golden era. It's shifted by like three years. That was 1947 to 72. This is 1950 to 69. And that does come into play with a couple of past candidates. So we'll we'll touch upon that. Then modern baseball is 1970 to 1987. And the today's game, which we'll be talking about in season two, uh, is 1988 to present. So this group last met in 2015, but that was under the old golden era, uh, 1947 to 1972 rules. And that was the shutout, Graham. What, what do you remember about that one? It's heartbreaking, honestly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I believe that was where Dick Allen and Tony Oliva each fell a vote short and then I'm not mistaken, I'm pulling from memory here, but I think Jim Cott fell two votes short. And I mean, I've, I've talked to Jim Cott before, and he sounds like somebody who's been through the ringer with the Hall of Fame. And then, yeah, um, I, I I wasn't able to talk to Dick, Dick Allen before he died. I really, really wanted to interview him when I was writing for Sporting News, and his son went so far as actually lobbying to, you know, for, for him to speak with me and basically being like, look, Graham is a sympathetic party. Like, I I'll be talking a lot today about how worthy I think that Dick Allen is in the Hall of Fame, but Allen was skittish as well. And then Tony Oliva's still alive. Sabermetrically, he's not the strongest candidate, but he's he's somebody I support just partly because he's still alive and he can still enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a big deal. Minnie Minoso fell short as well last time as well, also passed away. Um, so it's, you know... Candidates from this era are, are dying pretty quickly, um, and we don't have a ton of them left. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, um, hopefully, whoever gets in from this era, at least one of them is still alive to enjoy it when it happens. But I'm not optimistic at this point. Yeah, uh, that's so true. Because the the top vote getters last time around, Dick Allen, Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, and then Maury Wills was three votes shy. They were all living at the time. Allen has since passed. I believe Minnie Minoso had already passed when this vote happened. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I might, I might, I might be wrong. Yeah, I might be pulling something from memory. Um, yeah, then then uh, filling out that ballot, Ken Boyer, uh, who had passed away quite a while ago, Gil Hodges as well. Um, executive Bob Housem, 
um, who under the new rules, I do not think that he would be eligible. I think he falls more into the modern baseball era. Um, Billy Pierce and then Louis Tion definitely falls into the modern baseball era because he has been on the last two modern baseball era ballots. Now in 2011, uh, that was when Ron Santo got in uh, shortly after he had passed away. So this is this is a theme with this era, as you said. Yeah, mo- mo- most definitely. I mean, I'm I'm reasonably optimistic that Dick Allen will will get in this year, um, but you know, you never know. Yeah. So looking just at the strength of this ballot, um, now my mind goes to Hall rating because you know that's that's kind of the thing I do at the Hall of Stats, and there aren't too many statistically significant candidates, I guess you could say on this ballot. So Ken Boyer is actually at the top of the list, uh, just barely over Dick Allen. Uh, Ken Boyer's at 116, Dick Allen at 115. Jimmy Wynn is up there at 109. Willie Davis, who never even appeared on a, a, a BBWAA ballot is at 102. Billy Pierce just over the line at 101. And Minnie Minoso is just under the line, except his Negro League stats are going to push him over. So there's a few non-players that could appear on this ballot as well. Uh, I admit, I feel like this pool is a little bit shallow uh, on this ballot. Um, so from like the executives, we have Buzzy Pavese, who is probably a pretty compelling candidate, and Joan Payson, uh, who was a was the, the founder and, and initial uh, president of the New York Mets. A uh, couple of managers, Danny Murtaugh is relatively compelling, I would say. Uh, Chuck Dressen also has had some support over the past, I believe. In terms of umpires, uh, Tom Gorman is one that had come up a few times. He worked five World Series. He was a, a league supervisor. And Emma Ashford, the, the first Black uh, umpire in, in the AL and NL, uh, would be a compelling candidate as well. Despite his very short major league career, he worked in the, the Pacific Coast League for quite a while. Any thoughts on those uh, candidates, both from the players and non-player side, before we kind of jump into your ballot? Yeah, I mean, we were, I think we were prepping lists, you know, of, of candidates before this. And I think Fuzzy Bavese was the one non, non-player candidate that I had on there. And yeah, I mean, if the goalposts were, were drawn up differently for, for where the eras land, you know, you know, I might justify putting uh, Bob Housem on there or Danny Murtaugh. I wouldn't put Charlie Dressen on a on a on a Hall of Fame ballot. I mean, the the, the image I have of Charlie Dressen is after the 1952 World Series. I think it is. There's a picture of him like celebrating in the Yankee uh, locker room, even though he was the manager of the Dodgers, who had just lost to the Yankees. So that's not a Hall of Famer. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, you know, the Vasey was a good executive, um, and uh, I mean, Housem. If, again, if, if it was if it was later, I mean, Housem's the big red machine. He was the architect of that. You know, stuff he did before wasn't really as big. I mean, the big red machine is really what he's known for. As for Joan Payson, like I'll be honest, I I don't know enough about her. I mean, her name has come up before in stuff I've read. I mean, yeah, she was the first owner, I believe, of the Mets, um, and you know, um, has a hand in their success as a result of that, but. I, I would probably need to know a little more about her case. And I'd be interested if you read up on her a bit. Um, I mean, what did, uh, what, what stuck out about her case to you? Yeah, honestly, that was a name on your spreadsheet that I didn't know, uh, to be completely honest. So I dug in a little bit. So at first she was a, my, she had a minority owner or had some shares at least in the New York giants. And when they were going to move West, she was vehemently against that and tried to stop it by buying a larger share ended up just selling her shares when the team moved because she was angry about that. And then uh, there was the Continental League, which uh, I don't know too much about, but th- it was like this threat of a third major league. And she was one of the owners that was going to be in that with a New York team. And uh, while that plan fell through, what it did do is push the owner's hands to uh, expand Major League Baseball for the first time in 60 years. And she got the New York uh, franchise in the National League from that. So it's actually a pretty compelling case when you dig into a little bit. Uh, I don't know if it's enough to crack the top 10, but I, I do believe that uh, she might be someone that's certainly worth uh, digging into further. That was how I felt when we were talking a lot about kind of, you know, the early days, uh, the early baseball candidates, uh, you know, from, from, the, from the previous episodes we did. It's like, 
you know, the ballot's so limited still that there's a lot of people you can't necessarily quite justify them as one of the 10, but it's perfectly reasonable for yeah. them to be up for some sort of consideration. I mean, at the very least, you hope the screening committee that puts the ballots together are, you know, taking a long and serious look at these people. All right, so we can move on to your 10-person ballots. And uh, did you have a hard time putting this ballot together? Was it was the pool deep, shallow? What, did it, you, you seem to put it together relatively quickly, I'll admit. So th these are guys that have certainly been on your mind. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few things. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you and I, like we've, we've been studying this stuff for, for a long time, especially in internet years. I mean, I, I heard somebody say one time that the internet is like dog years. And so we've, we've been doing this like 70 years or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of candidates who have emotional pull to their names. Uh, you know, I sort of gravitate somewhat towards those types of candidates. I like the sabermetric ones too, but I believe in balance. And then truthfully too, I think I peeked at your list before I made mine. So that, that made the process go, go a little quicker too. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, one thing that struck me in putting this all together was at the start, you think, okay, this is really picked over. But then as you start getting into it, at least for me, it was like, I got to the point that I probably could have had 14 or 16 names there. I mean, pretty easily. Um, yeah. Um, so what, what names from my list stuck out to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to, to jump on something that you just said there, um, where um, yeah, it's, there aren't the, the slam dunk, like these guys have to be in the hall of, I mean, there's a couple of them, I feel. There aren't so many of those that you can actually, what's the word I'm trying, you can be creative and say like, this is the type of candidate that I would normally not be able to honor, but I would like to spend some time thinking about this person as a Hall of Famer. So it's not like you know, 10 guys that have to go in, like I feel like the, the Negro League ballot was or something like that. So it, so who stuck out on your ballot to me was probably the names closer to the bottom, honestly, where like the ones at the top, we could maybe start with because they're on my list too. And maybe we should just start right away with uh, Dick Allen. Yeah, yeah. Um... You want to go first or, or all all right. I can just give my little capsule, you know, at 58.7 war, he's 17th in jaws among third basemen. He was an MVP, a rookie of the year. He had seven all-star seasons, didn't have the 2000 hits, had about 350 home runs, but the slash line 292, 378, 534, uh, when context adjusted, that's a 156 OPS plus. That's like, uh, like at 155 is Mays, Aaron, DiMaggio, and Ott, and, and Allen is at 156. So he had 5.4 war per 162, just a great hitter. Uh, no, no other way about it. Just a tremendous hitter. Didn't provide a ton of defensive value, but just one of the great bats in the history of the game. Yeah, I mean, it, I wouldn't put a player in the Hall of Fame on the basis of one stat alone, but with Dick Allen and OPS Plus, I would almost be willing to do that just because he is such an underrated hitter. And it's like, you know, when I was at Sporting News, one of the things that I wrote one time, and I, I think you can still find it out there, but I, I called up a bunch of his former teammates to like learn what he was actually like. And, you know, because he's he's been maligned over the years, just he wasn't a perfect person. And you know, um, his career was truncated. I think he had some issues with alcohol, but, you know, to me, he's a very legit candidate statistically, but it's funny. I was, I was talking to some of his old teammates and they're saying good things about him as a teammate, but then I was, you know, gotten to ask him about like whether they thought he was a Hall of Famer or not. And some of them were breaking it down to like old school statistics and being like, well, you know, he, he like batting average or home runs and it's like damn it like that Dick, Dick Allen got screwed by his era you know if he had played in the 1990s his batting average and raw statistics would have been a whole lot higher I mean 156 OPS plus you know it, it translates very very well to a better offensive era and unfortunately he had to play in you know what Brian Penny would call you know kind of a another dead ball era and then also to boot he had to do it in Philadelphia as a black man which you know it's you you're up against all sorts of racism and it's just you know the to me the guy is a slam dunk obvious Hall of Famer and it's it's so a shame that it couldn't have happened in his lifetime but you know it's still it would mean something to his family and I really hope the Hall of Fame gets this one right this year. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think back to this uh, Bill James article that uh, went in, it really just dug into how 
terrible he was for his teams. And I think he ended with the line, if Dick Allen is a hall of famer, then I'm a nincompoop or something like that. And I, I, I don't love that because we didn't live in Dick Allen's shoes during his career. Like the, the things that he was lashing out against are not things we ever had to deal with. And then you had players like, I don't know if you talked to him too, but like Mike Schmidt would say he was a, a tremendous teammate. So, you know, you hear it from the teammates and, and they have a totally different story. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. Um, he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer. Um, among players with 7,000 plate appearances, he's 15th all time in OPS plus. That's just, and that's, yeah, <laughs> he's a Hall of Famer. One of my favorite Dick Allen stories, and I, I didn't include this one I wrote uh, for, you know, in the thing that I wrote for Sporting News, but I, I was talking to different guys and I, I think it was Carlos May who I was talking to. So Dick Allen was really into horses and just absolutely loved them. And Carlos May told me, so Dick Allen always marched to the beat of his own drum, but Carlos May told me that uh, Dick Allen used to track uh, horse crap into the dugout, or at least during the locker room, like that happened. So yeah, that was just one of those things. I mean, you know, it's a different guy, but gosh, I mean, the Hall of Fame has had all sorts of interesting characters over the years. Dick Allen wouldn't be worse than a lot of guys who are already in there. Yeah, and I think that we we know today that Dick Allen was putting up with a lot of things he shouldn't have had to put up with. So, yeah. so speaking of which, why don't we move on next to Mini Minoso? And he is, uh, I mean, I can't pick one from this. It's 1A and 1B, uh, Allen and Minoso for me on this ballot. So he had 53.8 war. Uh, now there's, there's some things we have to consider there. Uh, he's 18th all-time in Jaws uh, among left fielders. Nine all-star seasons, three gold gloves. Thanks to the, the new Negro League stats uh, on baseball reference, he has over 2,000 hits, nearly 200 home runs, just a hair under 300 batting average, 387 OBP, 461 slugging, 130 OPS plus. That's really good. Four and a half war per 162. In his three Negro League seasons, he had a total of 111 league games that we know of. And in those games, uh, he was tremendous. He was scoring 89 runs, uh, 147 hits, 313 average, 139 OPS plus, three and a half war. And that's in like two thirds of a season. But he did it over a three year span. So and then when he finally got signed, he absolutely demolished the minor leagues for a couple of years. So it, you could say that what should be five years of his major league career, we only have 111 games for. So that's something that brings down his stats a little bit. So I think you could very easily add 10 war to, to Minnie Minosa's career. Maybe. I mean, one thing that's worth, worth pointing out is, I mean, I believe, and I'm, I'm not looking at this right now, but I believe he debuts in 1949 in the majors and then has to go down to the minors for a couple of years before really staking a long-term spot. So, I mean, you could obviously argue about kind of the racial politics for black prospects back then. I mean, there were guys who got stuck in the minors unfairly, like Dick Power. But I mean, you know, fact of the matter is, I mean, he, you know, Minoso was down in the minors for a couple of years after technically debuting in the big. So I'm, I'm not sure how good it is to credit war for that for those years. But definitely with the Negro leagues, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified that his numbers are climbing now and that he's he's over 2,000 hits and I, I think that's absolutely justified and yeah I mean Minoso to me it's him and Dick Allen are the two really easy candidates on this ballot to me they're two obvious Hall of Famers they both should be in um, and yeah it's hard it's hard to pick one or the other as the top guy I mean for me I'd, I'd probably say Dick Allen but you know, um, Minoso might be the better candidate. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, definitely, you know, it's sadly what they have in common is they, they both passed away before they could get in. And they were, you know, they were both guys who really should have gotten in in their lifetime. Yeah, they're, they're certainly top 10 candidates outside the Hall of Fame, I would say, and the, the top two on this ballot. And that's, I mean, that's a good point that you have about uh, the minor leagues there. He was behind a lot of other uh, Indians prospects that they were trying out at the time. Maybe there was some, some racial reasons he was not on the team at the time, but uh, he's not the only player that's ever been blocked to at a position. I, I 
Elston Howard <laughs> can probably say a lot more about that as well. Um, so yeah, I, not saying that the 10 extra war is a slam dunk, but uh, I think in a different situation, he could have had the opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah that's- um, So speaking, unfortunately, about players that had uh, just passed away before their chance. Let's move right on to Bill Freehan, who is the most recent player from this era that we lost. He hasn't been on the last couple uh, golden era ballots, uh, golden days. Well, golden era it was at the time, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's confusing. I mean, I even, I butcher the names up occasionally and I want to write a book about this. So yeah, no, it's, it's confusing. <laughs> Quick little Bill Freehand capsule, 44.8 war, 16th in Jaws all-time among catchers. 16th, that's that's pretty serious. He's 11th all-time, sorry, sorry, 11 all-star seasons, which 11 all-star seasons and not getting in the Hall of Fame, that's extremely rare. You got to look at Alex Radcliffe in the Negro Leagues to find another player uh, with that many. Um, 1,591 hits, you got the even 200 home runs. Like Dick Allen in that era, 262, 340, 412, uh, very, they don't look great, but that's a 112 OPS plus when you context adjust. And a 112 OPS plus for a catcher who's maybe defense first is uh, a very good line. Your thoughts on Bill Freehan? I don't know. So it's interesting. Like, I mean, I think Freehan was one of my selections, you know, just because I, I think he was underrated and, you know, one of the greatest catchers of the basically the mid 60s, to you know, basically early 70s. I was thinking about this, though, just now as you were, you know, talking about him. I think what hurts Bill Freehan is he's sort of between eras of great catchers. You've got the 1950s, you've got Yogi Berra and Roy Campanella, then you go to the 70s. You've got Johnny Bench, you've got yeah. Carlton Fisk, you've got Ted Simmons, you've got Thurman Munson. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the 60s, I just don't think the 60s really stack up that much for the entire decade. I mean, you've got Barra at the end of his career. You've got, you know, basically Bench and Simmons right at the start of theirs. And it's just, you know, Freehand was one of the best, if not the best, of kind of a weaker crop. And so I... You know, it could be like guys who, you know, were big hitters in like the 70s or the 80s. And as they hit the ballot then in the 90s and early 2000s, and you've got these people just putting up stupid numbers. Like it just doesn't look as impressive. So freehand maybe came up against something similar. I don't know. So by that, do you mean just because he was maybe the best of his era might not mean he's all uh, Hall of Fame level? Is that? Yeah, well, I mean, so Hall of Famers or candidates get you know, they get, they get considered on a delayed basis. So it could be by the time that, you know, you waited your five years since your career ended to go onto the writer's ballot at that point, dramatically better, you know, catchers or whoever are playing and you just look worse by comparison. It's like, oh, you know, that's not a hall of famer. We've got Johnny Bench who's already, you know, already won an MVP and, you know, he's light years better. And people forget to adjust for the era differentials, even, you know, which can occur even in like a five or six year stretch, you know, the game can change drastically in that time. And a guy like Freehand might not get his due, you know? Yeah, that I totally get. When he was coming up on the Hall of Fame ballot, the there was a golden age of catchers happening right before everybody's eyes. So his numbers didn't look quite the same. In prepping for this, I, I put together a list of like 40 player candidates just to kind of make sure that I, I cast a, a large enough net. And the other catchers on the list are Smokey Burgess, uh, Elston Howard, Sherm Lawler, uh, Del Crandall. So the, that's the type of other candidates that we're looking at on this ballot. I think, uh, uh, Elston Howard has a, a different and very interesting case as well. The other ones, I don't think anyone's going to make a Hall of Fame case for. One thing that I'm a little curious about as well is, I mean, Freehand, he had his only appearance on the writer's ballot in 1982, and he got 0.5% of the vote. I, I just pulled up, you know, his, his baseball reference page right now. But what people might forget is that Thurman Munson, you know, died in 1979, and that the writers actually waived their normal five-year eligibility period get Munson on the ballot right away and then Munson actually didn't do so hot as a client as a candidate it was weird I mean I think you know he did a handful of appearances on the ballot and that was it and Freehand then gets to debut on the ballot right around then so it couldn't have been great I mean you had somebody who was really celebrated as you know just a brilliant catcher and is a dud as a hall of fame candidate and then you got Bill Freehand coming along and so it I don't know I'm, I'm curious if that hurt him at all 
Yeah, that's a really good point about the timing. But you would put them on your your list of 10 now? Yeah, it, I mean, honestly, at the very least, I mean, he just passed away after being after being sick for a while. I think I want to say he was sick for multiple years. And it's just at the very least, I mean, give the man some consideration. I mean, if, if not now, then when, you know? Mm-hmm. Speaking of... That was a terrible segue. I'm just going to say, uh, <laughs> I have absolutely nothing to connect these two players. All right. We're going to go right to Ken Boyer. Uh, Ken Boyer. I love, um, like, like I said, he was the top player on this ballot for by hall rating 62.8 war 14th in jaws among third basemen, seven all-star seasons, um, 11 total games, but seven seasons, five gold gloves. He had an MVP major league player of the year, 1964 world series champ. 287, 349, 462. He came a little bit earlier than Allen and Freehand, so his slash line looks a little bit better. He's got that that nicer batting average there. Um, 116 OPS plus. Uh, it's actually 121 if you look at it through linear weights as RBAT plus. So he, he gets dinged a little bit um, with OPS plus. So five war per 162. He's a Great combo of hitting and fielding, uh, plus 184 runs above average uh, for hitters, for his hitting component of war, 73 runs above average on the fielding side. Ken Boyer, I'll admit, is one that I'm surprised didn't get in all these years because uh, he looks like a pretty compelling candidate on the sta- uh, the historically standard uh, Hall of Fame standards uh, and maybe isn't as great of a sabermetric candidate as he is in the more traditional sense your thoughts yeah i mean it's funny so to me like by sabermetrics ron santo you know is the better candidate but you could look at it on paper and if sabermetrics weren't really your thing like ken boyer might look like the better candidate um and yeah no it's 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 interesting i mean i'm, I'm just on on his uh you know baseball reference page right now i mean it's interesting he's one of those candidates who who went the full 15 years on the ballot back when you could do that and yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. Just and, and in fact, actually, it's unusual with him too because he he was on for several years and he was off for several years. So he went the full fifteen years, but it's like he did it over a twenty-one year span, uh, basically nineteen seventy-five to ninety-four, with a break from nineteen eighty through eighty-four until he was allowed to get back onto the ballot. Um, yeah, and just one of those guys who was always able to stick around and grab ten to twenty percent of the vote, but just. Yeah, I really couldn't build from that point. And even too, I mean, he had some of his best appearances as a candidate in the late 80s when the ballot got pretty weak. Like you could look at 1988 as really, relatively speaking, it's one of the weaker ballots. A lot, a lot of guys kind of who aren't in the Hall of Fame popped off their vote totals that year. Now, you know, guys like Mickey Lowlich. Um, so to me, like I like Tim Boyer. I, I don't have a problem with him eventually being in the Hall of Fame, but I'm not going to put him in front of Dick Allen or Minnie Minoso. I mean, those guys for sure. And even I wouldn't really want him getting in before like Belfry and I mean, it'd be like, well, why Tim Boyer now? I mean, you know, we've just, we've got such a limited amount of guys who can get in through this year. I wouldn't put Tim Boyer really in front of anybody. Okay. We're going to move on to, so those were the candidates that um, I knew going into this. Like those are the ones that I really like. Um, they're sabermetric candidates. They, I think they stack up very well, however you look at them. Um, one downside is that none of them are alive at this point. And many of the living candidates maybe aren't as good sabermetrically, but are still very compelling. Um, let's go into Gil Hodges. He's kind of the the big guy that always comes up on this ballot. He's been considered, the, I think he's been considered 19 times or something uh, by the Veterans Committee uh, and has never gotten in. He got over 50% of the BBWA vote. I think it was actually over 60%. You could probably tell me that. Um, only about 44 war though, 40th and jaws at first base, but eight-time all-star, three-time gold glove, 370 home runs, 120 OPS plus. Um, uh, he actually had fewer than 2000 hits, which kind of surprised me. He did win the World Series uh, with the 1969 Mets, uh, but overall his managerial record was just 467. It was a pretty short career, obviously cut short by his, his untimely death. Um, your thoughts on Gil Hodges as a candidate and as a overall candidate, if you include everything that he did. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's sort of a Dale Murphy-esque candidate to me where sabermetrically, you can't justify it as much, but a part of me doesn't doesn't care that much. Like, I mean, you know, uh, with Hodges, yeah, I mean, his managerial numbers were brought down a bit that he also managed the Washington Senators um, and they, you know, the expansion senators in the 60s who weren't very good. Um, and then, yeah, unfortunately, uh, he got to the Mets and then uh, died of a heart attack, I want to say, 47, uh, a few days shy of his 48th birthday. Um, and he's one of those people, if he'd lived longer, I mean, it would have been really interesting to know what does a full managerial career look like for him? I mean, does he become a Joe Torres sort of candidate where he ultimately gets elevated to being a Hall of Famer or do that? You know, we'll never know. Um, and then, yeah, as far as him as a player, um, he was iconic member of the boys of summer Dodgers. Um, the second they left Brooklyn, basically, I mean, the decline more or less began. I mean, he did, did not do well with the adjustment to Los Angeles, as could be said for, you know, a number of their players. I mean, Duke Snyder is the same story. Um, but, you know, before all that, though, I mean, he's one of the best power hitters in, in baseball history to the point that he retired. Um you know, uh, Gold Gloves got got introduced late in his career. If they'd been introduced earlier, he likely would have won a bunch uh, just because, I mean, defensively, his reputation is as one of the best first basemen in baseball history. Um, and so he's he's the sort of guy who I'm generally in support of going into the Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, kind of sabermetrics or no. I, I usually like people to have a little bit better of a case sabermetrically, but Hodges is one of those guys I can make an exception for. Yeah, that's certainly fair. Uh, actually, the the metrics do bear out that he was a, a strong defender at first base. I think the case, it, he has great looking stats on the surface. It's just when they're context adjusted, it, it doesn't look as good. And, you know, that's not what he was paid for. He was paid to get the, the numbers that he produced. And, you know, I, I certainly have some sympathy for that. And, you know, I used to be very anti-Gil Hodges for the Hall of Fame, but I've definitely softened my stance uh, on that front, as I have on a lot of these candidates, to be honest, uh, going to another Dodger, Maury Wills. Um, I'm probably a little less uh, into his case. Under 40 war, 48th and Jaws at shortstop, seven time All Star, two time Gold Glove. He did win the MVP in 1962, uh, was the Major League Player of the Year that year as well. His career offensive slash line, 281, just a 330 OBP and 331 slugging, which brings his OPS plus to 88. He did get the 2,000 hits, just over 2,134, 586 steals, of course, won three World Series, 3.3 war per 162. You have him on your list. Can you talk about Maury Wills some? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I talked to him last year for Sports Illustrated, and I mean, I, I got to say, first off, he, he was a wonderful interview. I mean, he's in his late 80s now, um, but uh, yeah, he, you know, he, we, we talked on the phone for almost an hour, and he was just, he was a lot of fun to talk to. I mean, everything from, I believe he barnstormed with Jackie Robinson in the 50s to, yeah, just kind of, he became one of the great base dealers, and just, you know, just really, really had an unusual, but just unique career. I mean, basically he was in the minors for most of the fifties. I mean, he was, you know, I think he debuted as a minor league candidate in like 50 or, or, or minor league player, excuse me, in like 1950 or 51. And then that was back in the era that you could be a minor leaguer for, you know, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years before finally getting your spot. Um, and then, yeah, he he basically, you know, gets to the majors and, you know, has the green light to steal. And he wasn't single-handedly the person who revolutionized baseball. It's a, it's a misnomer that he was. I mean, the game was already going in that direction by the time that, you know, he debuted. Uh, you he had guys like Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson and Bill Bruton and Sam Jeffro um, and uh, Louis Aparicio. I mean, the steal was coming back in baseball already. By the time that Maury Wells, you know, literally took off running, you know, kind of took off and running. But yeah, I mean, that being said, I mean, I think he helped then push it to new heights. And obviously, again, a candidate who wasn't perfect, uh, big issues with alcohol and drugs in life. He's been sober now for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, to me, he's another one of those guys who, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, most of the guys that I listed on, on my list of 10, I 
I don't think I'd really have an issue with a single one of them eventually being in the Hall of Fame. To me, the question is just the order that they go in. Uh, just because you, you obviously can't have all 10 guys going at once. I mean, the Hall of Fame doesn't allow that. And you wouldn't even want like three or four guys going in at once. That that wouldn't be great. I would I would think that would cheapen the honor if you had it all. So to me, it's just more a question of who goes in first. And Wells is He's somebody I'm fine with eventually being in, but, you know, probably have him a little ways down of when he actually goes in. The one thing, though, with him that could actually justify it is he is still living. And mm-hmm. most of the guys on this list, you can't say that about. So in that respect, like if he got in this year and like Dick Allen and Minnie Minosa didn't, on one hand, I'd be I'd be a little upset, like, say, you know, just in terms of like Allen and Minosa are by far the two best candidates. But. Gosh, I would be I would be tuning in to watch every second uh, Maury Wells's induction speech. I, you know, I, I I would really relish that, and I, it'd be a nice thing to see. And the Hall of Fame wouldn't be any worse for it. Yeah, that's a really great point. I I do wonder if we're going to see a focus here on living candidates when building the ballot and when placing the votes, just because we lost so many lately and we'll lose them again before we do uh, we do this ballot again. And there's a couple uh, living candidates that are next on the list that I'm, I lean a little bit more towards than, than Maury Wells. Uh, one is Jim Cott. Uh, he's just about 50 war. That's 112th in Jaws among starting pitchers, which is certainly not great. Three-time All-Star, 16-time Gold Glove. He won 283 games, lost 237. 3.45 ERA comes out to just an, a 108 ERA plus 2.2 war per 162. Doesn't look great, but he just pitched so much. 25th all time in innings pitched. Uh, like I said, that big win total uh, because of appearing so much in the majors. I mean, maybe he's the dictionary definition of a compiler. Maybe he's like the light version even of Tommy John. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, Jim Cott, he is alive, which would be wonderful to, to honor someone that's alive. Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying I, I, I think that compilers get a rough go of it sometimes because if I was in the majors for 25 seasons, like I would not compile anything. I would just be <laughs> an utter detriment to my team. Um, like, yeah, it would not be good. So it's like, you know, there's a part of me that's like the Jim Cotts, the Tommy Johns, the Rusty Sobs, you know, those sorts of candidates like whatever like i mean it's 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 great that they stuck around as long as they did um and you know very few players are going to be able to really be compilers when you get right down to it um other stuff that i'll say about cot um he's first off he's somebody i've, I've talked to a number of times um and he's, he's a lot of fun to talk to he has a he has a great personality if if, if you've ever if you've ever listened to him do a commentary on uh, MLB Network, I mean, he definitely has his own distinctive style and it can be a little polarizing sometimes, I think. Uh, but I really enjoy talking to him. Um, and I think I think statistically there is, there is a case for him, mainly with longevity. It's just so unusual. You don't have that many guys who pitched as long as he did. But then for peak value, he also was pretty good in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, he was... He was a key member uh, uh, with the Minnesota Twins, you know, uh, when they were doing big things in the mid 60s. And then I believe both the White Sox and even the Phillies, I think I'd have to double check this, but I I think he had success with all of them, like is, you know, kind of a front of the rotation sort of guy. Yeah, he had two seasons with the White Sox in particular that were over seven war. And that was in 74 and 75, which is outside of this era at, at age 35 and 36. But uh, he, he is literally like 50% on uh, in between the two eras. And I'm assuming that he's eligible for the uh, golden days era because he has not been on a modern baseball era ballot. But it's really remarkable. He has... Um, that the 283 wins literally like 141 in one era, 142 in another, he has eight gold gloves in each era. It's, it's unbelievable how his, his career uh, splits between the two, but yeah, you're right. He had a couple really great seasons, uh, several more that were very good. Um, So it's not like he only uh, was like moderately above average every year for 25 years. There were some great ones in there. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I should correct myself too. Um, I, I said that he did big things with the Phillies. Really, for peak value, his case is the White Sox and the and the the Twins. I mean, his, his biggest year was 1966 uh, when he went 25 and 13 with a 2.75 ERA. And let's look at this now: 131 ERA plus, which is nothing elite, but it's it's still it's still a good year. Um, Especially in 300 innings. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say though, I I really don't like these era cutoffs and distinctions because you've got guys like Jim Cott and Dick Allen and uh, Louis Tiantz and other where it's like are we only supposed to consider half their case I mean I think that the instruction is that you can consider the entirety of their case and then the era just supposedly refers to where they did their best work but it's it's totally arbitrary to me I mean you're going to have Dick Allen on this ballot and he won an MVP award in the years thereafter this ballot lets off so it's just I really don't like it, and I, I hope they do away with the system at some point. No, it is definitely um, so. They only assign the error based on when they judge the candidate to have the most impact on the game. But then, independent of that, you are allowed to judge their entire career. Like even if, like, uh, is there someone like if Gil Hodges had managed into the 1990s, you'd be able to to account for his entire managerial career when voting on this ballot too yeah no i mean and i and i understand that and like it it makes sense to me and you know it's it, it seems it seems logical enough i just worry when you get 16 members of the committee sitting there in a room hashing out whatever how clear is this going to be to them yeah, uh, I, I hope that they make it clear to, to the people that are in the room. That's, that should be table stakes there. Yeah. All right, we're, we're going to move on to maybe my favorite living candidate on this ballot. Um, one might consider him the Don Mattingly of this ballot or, or this era is uh, Tony Oliva. Only 43 war, 34th and Jaws at right field, but he packed that into a short amount. So his eight-year peak was 42.3 of those 43 war. So that's, that's an amazing peak. That's eight years that he was an all-star gold glove. Um, and one of them, three batting titles overall, he hit 304, 353, 476 for a 131 OPS plus plus 215 hitter plus 56 fielder during that peak 5.8 war per 162 overall 4.2. Um, but for eight years, he was a hall of famer. Um, and I think that that might be enough. Your thoughts on Tony Oliva. Yeah, he's he's another type of candidate who sabermetrically, you know, he might not be the, the cream of the crop, but another guy who, yeah, it's I'm absolutely fine with Tony Oliva being in the Hall of Fame. I mean, injuries cut his career short, um, but for peak value before that, he wasn't quite Roberto Clemente, uh, you know, but he was at the very least kind of a poor man's version of that in terms of how he could hit, I mean, in the 60s. Um, you know, um, and uh, kind of a forerunner to Rob Peru, or, or God, I just called him Rob. This is embarrassing. Uh, Rob Peru. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, follow me at Graham Dude for amazing baseball insights. <laughs> but no, I mean, um, Oliva is, is another one of those guys who, yes, he's still living. Um, and if you put him in, there are, there are, a, many hall of famers I, we were just talking about this earlier on twitter today where you don't want the worst person who gets into the hall of fame to set a new precedent uh you know it's not like oh harold Dangerson, just let everybody in now because a harold Baines is not the worst hall of famer and b that's just not how it works but that being said i mean there are worse hall of famers than tony oliva who were in there um i could probably rattle off five or ten of them off the top of my head i mean you know you you could name dozens with a peak that did not match Oliva's though. And I think that that's a different case. Like I, I'm, I have a soft spot for Nomar Garcia Parra uh, for the hall of fame too, for very similar reasons for, you know, half a dozen seasons, he was uh, absolutely a hall of famer. Uh, Don Mattingly, again, I'd have no problem with him getting in. It's a very similar type of thing as Oliva. So yeah. Remember, remember like in the late nineties when like the conversation with elite shortstop was like A-Rod, Jeter, Nomar. It was like the three of them, you talked about them all together. And then it's like post 2004, you're not really having that conversation anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, poor Nomar, yeah, he got got hit with too many injuries. But yeah, no, I, 
I, I like key candidates. I, you know, it's, they're, they're fun. You, you get these guys who for a handful of seasons are on top of baseball, but you know, um, you know, how many Hall of Famers can you really say that about? I, I don't know. I'm rambling. Um, so that's eight of your 10. We are, we're kind of leaving the player category but not fully because there's a very interesting candidate here that I guess I was never super high on his case just because I, I don't think I understood it enough, but the more I read about it, the more I'm understanding it, especially now with Marvin Miller getting in the hall of fame and hearing the things that Ted Simmons said about him. Yeah. Uh, and that's Kurt flood. And of course now the, the more that I go back to Kurt floods playing career too, the more I realize you know, this, this was very close to a hall of fame level player. Um, and he gave it up for, for this fight for against the reserve clause. And that's a, a very selfless thing to do. I mean, of course he, he did it cause he didn't want to go where he didn't want to play, but he set this up for other players in the future. So just, I'll, I'll give a capsule of his playing career. So 42 war 46th, uh, and Jaws at his position, center field. Obviously, that doesn't jump off the page. He was a three-time All-Star, seven-time gold glove. His his offense comes out to league average, 293 hitter, but with 342 OBP and just a 389 slugging. Um, his actual, actual his offense was a little bit above average when you consider the linear weight. So plus 23 runs above average as a hitter, plus 18 as a base runner, another plus 10 avoiding the double play. And plus 99 as a defensive player. So it was one of those guys that did everything a little bit above average, but you know, those doing everything a little bit above average, except the, the defense was more like uh, elite. That really adds up. But he was done after age 31, except for 40 plate appearances. And the three years before that, he had 13.2 war. He was coming off of a 3.8 war season. He was in maybe not as absolute prime, but he was a very productive hitter still when this happened. He very easily could have had another 10 to 20 war in this career. And, and that's already adding it to 42. So, you know, you could see him ending up with like a, a total that maybe in the, in the Willie Davis realm or something like that, but he challenged the reserve system. He was traded to St. Louis from St. Louis to Philadelphia on October 7th of 1969. That was a big trade. It included Dick Allen. It included Tim McCarver, a lot of guys. He refused to report, therefore he forfeited his $100,000 contract. In December, he sent a letter to Bowie Kuhn demanding that to be declared a free agent. Kuhn refused. He filed a million-dollar suit. And he had Jackie Robinson, Hank Greenberg, Bill Veck all testifying on his behalf. But the Supreme Court ruled against him five to three, although the, he lost that and really was blackballed from the game. He only got another 40 plate appearances after that. Uh, the reserve clause was finally defeated in December of 75. And, you know, all, what he did led to the reserve clause falling, led to 10 and five rights. I just talked a lot about Kurt Flood. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so I'll preface this by saying I've sort of gotten myself in trouble before, like writing about Kurt Flood, because so... I, first off, I think Kirk Flood should be in the Hall of Fame. I will say that up front. And I agree with, you know, pretty much everything you just said. Um, you know, um, it was, it was, his fight was, was a, a key part of the progression that led to, you know, Peter Sykes's decision to, you know, basically to make Gabe McCallie and Andy Messerschmidt uh, free agents following the 1975 season. You know, Flood, Flood's efforts before that, they didn't directly lead to it, but it would be foolish to say they didn't factor in at all and that they just, they happened independently in a cipher. I mean, life does not work that way. Um, but I've gotten myself in trouble before because I think for Flood's kids kind of want to make him seem like the Jackie Robinson of the labor uh, movement in baseball. And I, I do not find that to be accurate. And so, yeah, I wrote a thing in basically Sporting News like maybe five years ago. Um, basically expressing this and Kurt Flood's son came after me and asked me like who was paying me off and I don't know why people hit this default so often in journalism these days like no I, I do not accept bribes as a writer like that's that's basic um but yeah I 
you know, I, I think my take at the time was that I wanted Marvin Miller basically to get his due maybe first. And now Miller is in the Hall of Fame. A, a longstanding injustice got righted. So, gosh, like put Kurt Flood in as well. I mean, it's this isn't hard. I mean, you know, uh, again, it's, it's something I keep harping on throughout this. The question to me is just what order do you do it in, you know? Because right. um, I don't think it's such a glaring injustice that Kurt Flood should be the first person to go in. But that being said, like because of Marvin Miller just going in and the induction just happening, like I can actually see Kurt Flood having a decent shot on this ballot. Like if he makes it on, like I, I, I could see him going in. Like I, you know, even at the expense of like Dick Allen or Minnie Minoso, I think there might be more sentiment that would coalesce around Kurt Flood. Like that, that actually seems perfectly logical to me. Yeah, I, I could certainly see that happening. Labor is on the minds of everybody in the game, of course, now. And with with Marvin Miller just getting in, it was he was, I believe Ted Simmons even talked about Kurt Flood and, and his case as well. Well, yeah, Ted Simmons, I mean, he he had his own role in baseball labor fight as well. I I mean, I what was it? He, you know, I think he played a year without a contract signed or, or something like that. So, you know, because Marvin Miller was trying to get various guys to test the system. I mean, Bobby Tolan is another, you know, it's Marvin Miller was an incredibly shrewd, you know, negotiator and knew exactly what he was doing and also got to be up against the hilariously arcane labor system. I mean, any halfway competent, you know, labor negotiator might have done gangbusters back then. I've come around on this case and he's one that the, like, um, gosh, Tony Oliva, I've added him to my list. I, I started with a pretty short list of, of candidates that I knew of going into this, but so then moving on to your, your 10th name on your ballot. Uh, it is not a player here. It is Buzzy Vivesi, Buzzy Bavesi. There we go. Do you want me to give a capsule on Buzzy or do you just want to jump into yeah, chat? About I mean, that? you can, you, you can, you can do it if you want. Avesi began working for the Dodgers in 1939. He became the GM of the Dodgers uh, in 1951 and held that post till 1968. Four world champions uh, when he was on uh, in the GM chair. 1959 Executive of the Year. One thing that was interesting when researching this was his role in integration um, that I didn't know too much about. So Branch Rickey who was the GM at the time, charged Bavesi with finding an additional Dodgers affiliate for Black players like Don Newcomb and, and Roy Campanella that he was signing. And he settled on Nashua, New Hampshire, which uh, is very near and dear to me. I lived pretty close to Nashua up until uh, a couple of years ago. 35,000 people there, only 50 Black people in the entire town, but they opened their arms for uh Newcomb and Campanella. He found a, they had a new stadium there in Holman Stadium. It worked really well. Uh, he hired the, the managing editor of the Nashua Telegraph as the team president to get on the, the good side of the press. Manor, uh, he hired Walter Alston to be the manager. And of course, Alston went on to a Hall of Fame career of his own. Um, he had the backs of, of Nuke and Campy when the uh, Lynn Red Sox were abusing them. He confronted the, the Lynn manager after the game. And yeah, uh, just a lot of things that I liked to hear about Buzzy Bavesi as I was reading through it. He also, again, um, well, actually he found the, the location for Dodgertown. Um, uh, Branch Rickey had him do that too. Was the Montreal Royals GM for three years, I guess. Uh, after that, he was a uh, minority owner of the and president of the Padres. Gene Autry hired him later to be the GM for the Angels. Uh, had them, it didn't have as much success, but he did get them to their first two playoff appearances. Retired after 84. Um, I haven't been very high on non-players uh, during the, this whole process, but Bavese is pretty compelling. Yeah, I mean, my basic rationale was that, like, A, he's been a candidate before, and B, I wanted to have at least one non-player on this. I mean, I definitely think this ballot skews more towards players, and when this era has come up before in recent years, it has skewed heavily toward players. Um, so to me, Bavesi is the is the best of a fairly, fairly, I wouldn't want to say weak, but just lackluster group of, you know, kind of non-player candidates. Um, and he's somebody who I could see having a decent chance of being in the Hall of Fame at some point. And you, you could maybe say the same about Danny Murtaugh, but 
I don't know. I think I maybe got tripped up a little bit that Murtaugh managed beyond this era. And I, I also don't think he's as good of a candidate as, um, you know, as, as, as does he Bavese. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, Bavese is not somebody who I really can rant about like Dick Allen or Minnie Minoso. I mean, you know, I can, I can just get going on those guys, but yeah, Bavese is a perfectly solid candidate to me. Excellent. Yeah. So that makes your 10 Dick Allen, Minnie Minoso, Bill Freehan, Ken Boyer, Gil Hodges, Maury Wills, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, Kurt Flood, and Buzzy Bavese. You did give me a few names uh, in addition to Murtaugh of uh, if there was more space, you would have put them on. And that was Don Newcomb, Billy Pierce, Roger Maris, Harvey Keen. Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. Rocky Colavito. Uh, a handful of interesting candidates there. Do you want to touch on them some? Or? So yeah, no, I um, I mean, it's, it's again, it's having to limit this to 10 guys I mean, you're going to leave some good names off even when an Aerosmith picked over I don't know what this is but just as I dig into this I just start finding guys who you know it's you know, it just sort of kept my interest um and uh yeah I mean you know Harvey Keen kind of a similar case to Tony Oliva um you know great peak value as a hitter um fairly pedestrian second half of his career um Don Newcomb you know, for Don Newcomb, obviously, he's a pioneer player, um, you know, one of the best pitchers of the 50s. One thing I love about actually Don Newcomb's case, too, and I, I don't know if the Hall of Fame would factor this in, but Don Newcomb basically drank himself out of the big leagues, had major problems with alcohol, but gets sober in 1967 and literally helps thousands of people after that. And it's just it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful career in retirement. Even Maury Wells was one of the people that he helped. Um, and it's just it's. You know, the character clause usually applies to stuff that happens during a player's career, but for somebody like Newcomb, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily mind if they applied it for stuff even after. I mean, you know, he's, he's he really turned his life around. Um, you know, Rocky Calavito, to me, he's not, it's, he's one of those guys who, I mean, he, he definitely is not a top 10 candidate here. Um, and realistically, he probably is all a very good, um, but man, again, for peak value, I mean, you look at some of the stuff that he was doing late 50s, early 60s, and the, the curse of Rocky Colavito, which, you know, was a big thing for a long time, um, you know, uh, Colavito is, is, is an interesting candidate. And then, yeah, as far as Roger Maris, I mean, you know, um, he he's one of those guys who, you know, you don't want to enshrine people on the basis of one season or one accomplishment, but, you know, the 61 home runs, it's at least we're talking about, I mean, and back-to-back -back MVPs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was just struck as I started pulling names on this, that it was just, um, there really, there weren't just 10 names. I mean, there were, there were definitely more. Yeah, Roger Maris is definitely one of those that I think you have to consider on the basis of not being able to tell the story of baseball without him. There's very few players I would probably put quite on that level, but you can't without Roger Maris. He was just a, a very important figure there for a very long time. Uh, I mean, when I say for a very long time, no, I don't mean his career. I, I think that the, the legend of Roger Maris extended for a long time and, and about until that 1998 uh, home run chase, which was just a huge story. And just to, to mention Billy Pierce as well, I mean, gosh, uh, by sabermetrics, I mean, you look at it and Ken Whitey Ford, I mean, and I'm not original on this. I think Bill James talked about this long before I did, but Whitey Ford and Billy Pierce have a darn similar case. I mean, it's just two very different narratives, but numbers wise, they are, they are fairly similar. And if you're going to have Whitey Ford be in there, you know, Pierce might not be that bad of a guy to have in there as well. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that as well. He's one of the guys that's above the 100 Hall rating, too. Now, on Twitter earlier today, you mentioned uh, Jim Gilliam and, and how you were interested in seeing how the, the Negro League's stats might improve his case. Do you want to touch on that a bit? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at what Gilliam did uh, just in the National League, uh, you know, with the Dodgers, he's, he's not a Hall of Famer. I mean, he doesn't really even come that close. But He's one of those guys who he had several years in the Negro Leagues before he made the majors. So as we know more of his numbers and more stuff comes to light, he is one of those candidates I'm kind of watching because I do think that statistically 
candidates can almost kind of emerge as their numbers become more well known. I mean, we've, we've seen this happen with 19th century candidates, and I do think it's going to happen with Negro leaguers. And so Gilliam is, is, is one of the prime candidates for this for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's interesting about Gilliam, he's one of those guys who was signed from the Negro Leagues and then was put in the minors. And it's not because he needed to work his way up to the major leagues. No, him, Minoso, so many others, they clobbered the minors. They, they, They could have easily jumped right to the major leagues, but he didn't. And as a result, I mean, he still started his his career in Brooklyn at at age 24, but uh, he he was in the New York leagues producing uh, 300 average at age 17. So this is a guy that that could have been one of those players that hit the ground running at a a very young age and still 45 war in, in his career. This is this is a guy who's probably closer than we're giving him credit for. Yeah, I mean, gosh, let's take a second. I mean, so 3.5 war per 162, it's nothing elite, but you give that like a normal, you know, a normal, a normal career length, uh, you know, make it instead of 8,800, uh, you know, 8,872 PAs, you know, give them 10 or 12,000 PAs and 3.5 war per 162, that, that probably comes pretty close to, to 70 war, I would think. And that, that starts to be a much, a much, much different conversation for, for a Hall of Fame candidate. Yeah, not that this should factor into it, but in terms of the best second baseman that is available on this ballot, it's either Gilliam or it's Gil McDougald. So he, he's right up there at the top. Gil McDougald had a, a maybe more of a higher peak type player, but... But yeah, Gilliam is, is certainly compelling, not only for his AL and NL career, well, just NL career, but for what he did in the major league, uh, Negro Leagues before that too, which now we have much more data for. And Elston Howard, I guess, would kind of be in a similar situation too. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you can go down the line and I mean, there's even guys we haven't talked about. Like, I mean, Ted Kluzuski is a fun one. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the great power hitters of the fifties, uh, Carl Ferrello has his, has his fans. I, I don't think Carl Ferrello is a hall of famer, but there are people out there who think that Carl Ferrello is a, is a hall of famer. So, you know, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Willie Davis didn't even come up and he was a 60 war player. Yeah. And we're, we're supposed to talk about Jim Fergosi, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to bring him up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as you said we weren't going to talk about him, like on Twitter, it's like, okay, yeah, we're talking about him. So yeah, the I mean, reason yeah, the reason I said we were going to talk about him is because I, I, I made a prediction that the best player we would not talk about at all during this series would be Jim Fergosi. So go ahead, touch on Fergosi there. Yeah, I mean, Fergosi is like the Nomar Garcia para of the 60s, basically. Um, he's somebody who if you know, if he had kept up the early pace of his career, um, he would be a Hall of Famer. Instead, the thing he's best known for is being on the wrong end of a trade for Nolan Ryan. Um, you know, and then maybe, maybe if you're a bit younger of a fan, maybe you know him as, you know, the manager of the Phillies, I think it was, during the 90s. So, yeah, you know, for Ghost, he's probably not a Hall of Famer, but he's one of those guys who he could have been, you know, just, his career just wound up kind of going off track about midway through. Right. I mean, we... He still played 18 years, but it was not not at that same level, but still 4.2 war per 162 games. That's, you know, a, a, a notch above Gilliam. And we just said that he was certainly in the conversation as well. And he wasn't just manager of the Phillies. He was manager of that Phillies team, that 1993 Phillies team. Oh, good Lord. I think the big difference, though, for me between Fergosi and Gilliam is we know all of Fergosi's numbers. Gilliam, we do not know at all. Of oh, yeah. So I, I'll be really interested over the next few years, with like Scott Simkis and his team, you know, keeps keeps finding more Negro League statistics. I'm I'm really interested to see what Gilliam's numbers ultimately come out at. I could ask about so many players here, but I'll ask for about one more because I think he's maybe the best combination type candidate, um, player and manager. Felipe Alou. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Alou kind of seems to have a budding candidacy going, um, and he wouldn't be the worst selection. Just the question just becomes, 
do you honor him for this era or do you honor him for the today today's game ballot? I'm more of the mind that you honor him as a manager for the today's game ballot. I, I think that's where his best case is, but there are probably people who would make cases for him as a player. I don't know. Can, can you do it? Uh, I can't, but he's one of those guys who um, I was just on a, a podcast um, talking about some Indians related candidates and Mel Harder came up where he was like one of the, the rare candidate that like maybe comes close enough on the player level that his pitching coach career could push him over. Felipe Alou, he's probably 80% of the way there uh, as a player, but uh, I think his managing career certainly could make up that difference. But like you said, maybe uh, as a manager, he's, he's a little bit more compelling than even as a player. So yeah, that would, that would push him into today's game era candidate there yeah because yeah, he does I mean, he, oh sorry to interrupt you no, i was gonna say as the the one manager of the year award that was all i was gonna throw in there yeah i mean looking at his numbers from his playing career i mean he's probably a little bit off for me that's probably this is probably more hall of very good status for me as far as his playing goes but one, one thing to remember too is his managerial career like don't forget what happened to the expos in 1994 and he was the manager of that club oh. i mean alternate reality maybe we just give the Expos the World Series for that year. I mean, you know, nobody got it. So, you know, that we could retroactively credit him. I mean, the committee was willing to credit Harold Baines for time loss, basically for strikes, costing him 3,000 hits. I mean, I don't know. It's probably a little bit more of a stretch with Alou, but, uh, you know, it's uh, World Series can be an arbitrary thing, too. Like, I'm I'm a big booster of Dusty Baker's Hall of Fame case. I, mm. I, I think I was one of the people who helped convince the Sacramento chapter for us to rename ourselves as the Dusty Baker chapter. And Baker hasn't won any kind of World Series or anything. And who knows if that'll happen. But man, I, I'm perfectly fine with them going in the Hall of Fame when the time comes. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have you do one more thing. So one thing that the committee members are charged with is placing up to four votes. So if you're going to choose four from your 10, who would they be? Yeah. Um, Dick Allen and Minnie Minoso are two easy ones. Um, let's go ahead and go Kurt Flood just because of the focus on, on labor right now. And then for the fourth one, I'm going to choose a living candidate. Tony Oliva probably has a stronger case than Maury Wells. So I'll, I'll give my fourth vote to Tony Oliva. That is an excellent choice of four candidates. Any uh, other parting words here uh, on this era committee here? No, no, I, I appreciate you having me on again. I, I can I can talk this stuff all day. And I, I, I do think that it's going to be really interesting this fall to, to see, you know, basically how the early baseball and the Golden Days committees do ultimately vote. I mean, we, we could have multiple Hall of Famers coming out of these committees. And it'll, just, it'll be really interesting to see who they are just because it's it's not super obvious to me who, who they're, who's going to get in. I mean, I think Buck O'Neill has a pretty good shot for, for the early baseball. And then I think Dick Allen does have a really, really good shot uh, with the, you know, with the, the golden days, but you never really know on these things. Right. So I'm probably going to talk to a couple of the other folks about this ballot to get some, some other perspectives. And then once the, uh, the ballot is announced, I'm going to, I'll ring you up again, Graham, and we can react to that and see if it's anything like we expected or if it's anything different. Or, And then, of course, after the vote actually happens, we'll have a reaction to that as well. But so until then, thank you very much for your time, Graham. Uh, people can find him on Twitter at Graham Dude. Baseball Past and Present is his blog. Please check those out. Have a great evening, Graham. Thank you. Thank you, my friend.